When I was a kid, one of my favorite books to read were Choose Your Own Adventure books. They were all the rage in elementary school. And what you would do is you would start the book, and then a few pages in, there would be a choice. Pick choice A, turn to page 15. Choice B, you turn to page 20. And you would basically keep making those choices, and you would end up at a series of different conclusions or ends or possible ways that the story could end. Of course, if you made the wrong choice, you'd end up with a really bad outcome at the end of the book. Now, you could always flip back and choose again. You're not supposed to do that, but that's what you could do. And of course, that's what I always did. I would sort of, you know, dog tag the corner of where the choice would be. And if I didn't like where the story was going, I just flip back to that choice and start again until I got the outcome that I wanted. When we look at the book of Nahum, and especially when we compare it to the book of Jonah, we sort of see two paths, two trajectories, two ways the story can go. In Jonah, there's choice A, where you can repent and be saved. That's what happens to the city of Nineveh in Jonah. But then choice B is shown in Nahum, where Nineveh rejects the mercy of God and brings upon itself judgment. But unlike a choose-your-own-adventure story, when it comes to the eternal things of God, there's no going back. Your choices at the end of your life are final. So the book of Nahum is a sobering reminder of what's at stake with the gospel. What's at stake with rejecting or receiving the word of the Lord. And the promise that God has is this. He's going to save his people, those who trust him, and he's going to judge those who reject him. And between those two choices hangs eternity. This is Understanding Nahum. In Nahum chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, we learned about God's character, that he is jealous, vengeful, wrathful, just, and slow to anger. We also learned about God's works, that to his enemies, he's a terrifying force of nature, but to his people who trust in him, he's a stronghold and a refuge. He's a place of great security. Now, in Nahum 1.12 to the end of chapter 2, which we're going to read today, Nahum continues his prophecy against Nineveh, the capital of the national superpower Assyria, a common enemy of Israel. And Nineveh is ruthless and cruel. I mean, the Assyrian Empire was noted for how they would oppress other nations, enslave other nations, and do so in a brutal manner. And part of this oppression is happening to Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. Remember, Israel is split into two nations, two kingdoms. The north is called Israel, and the south is called Judah. The northern Israel uh, was taken over in 722 BC by Assyria, and the southern part, Judah, whom Nahum is speaking to, are a vassal state. They are a state underneath, but yet still maintaining some independence from the nation of Assyria. Now, Nahum's message is this. God is sovereign over all things, even the Assyrian invasion and even the oppression that Israel is currently experiencing. He's sovereign over all things, and he will both reverse and restore Israel's fortunes. Because he's in control, they can trust the Lord 
with their future. And so can we. This is Nahum chapter 1, verses 12 to chapter 2, verse 13. Thus says the Lord, Though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered him and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and lioness went, where his cubs were, with none to disturb? The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers will no longer be heard. God promises to end Judah's affliction under Assyria by destroying their capital city of Nineveh. Now at the time, Nineveh was the largest city in the world and boasted enormous military might and structural defenses. It was considered impenetrable. But even at full strength, Assyria is no match for God. He will cut down their defenses, end their royal line, and destroy their idols. And this is all to remind his people that God is going to defeat their enemies and restore them. God is going to restore the majesty of Jacob. Now, Jacob is often a name used for the nation of Israel because Israel descended from Jacob in the book of Genesis. And Jacob is actually renamed Israel by God. And God is saying, I'm going to redeem my people whom I've been working through for centuries, for thousands of years, really. And Nineveh, the proud alpha lion, because we kind of see this lion imagery toward the end, Nineveh will himself be hunted and plundered. The alpha lion will become the prey. This is the divine reversal that God is going to bring. 
And his people are to trust that the Lord will reverse their fortunes, even though in the present it seems like the wicked are winning. Now, God's judgment here is swift and final. Notice he makes a big deal out of how he cuts down his enemies at full strength. He crushes their idols. And this victory is proclaimed as good news, as gospel to Judah. So God is saying, look, no matter how strong Assyria is, they can't hold a candle to me. I'm going to raise their armies. I'm going to destroy them, bring them to their knees. So Judah, while you are under their oppression, rejoice. Keep your feasts. Fulfill your vows to me. Understand that the Lord will be faithful. In other words, this victory is so secure in the future that you can celebrate it in the present through worship, through trust, through suffering well under this injustice. Your oppressor will one day be overthrown. Now, this actually happened in the year 612 BC. An upstart kingdom called Babylon allied with some other nations to destroy Nineveh. And so God's judgment is not just some spiritual thing, it's historical. God actually brings another nation, which he often uses, to judge nations that are in his crosshairs, nations that he is particularly trying to deal with. So there's a divine reversal here. Assyria, the proud one who sieges and plunders others, will herself, and it's interesting that Assyria is spoken of in feminine terms, will herself be sieged and plundered. Assyria, the alpha line who preys on others, will herself be devoured. The royal line of Assyria will be cut off. The monarchy will be destroyed, but Israel's monarchy will be glorified, will be restored. God will bring Assyria to his knees and he will burst apart the bonds of suffering and slavery over Israel. This is a liberating message and it's talking about events in real space and time. Now, again, as I mentioned earlier, God often judges nations through other nations and he uses Babylon as a tool of judgment against Nineveh. And what we see is a harmony between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. This is what I mean. In Isaiah 9 through 10, God warns Israel that he's going to discipline them for their sin. And he's going to do so by using a quote, rod of anger, rod of my anger. And that rod that God is going to use to discipline Israel is a nation of Assyria. But what's interesting is God actually turns around and then says to Assyria, he's going to judge them for their pride and arrogance, for attacking his own people. So Assyria's motivation is to invade Israel out of greed and pride, out of sinful motivations. And God goes, I know to that, and I'm going to deal with that. I'm going to deal with your pride. But God, through that same action, brings about his good purposes of fatherly discipline. Maybe to summarize it in one phrase, what man meant for evil, God meant for good. I mean, that's the story of Joseph and the story of the entire Bible. So here we see that God judges nations through nations, but he also holds all nations to account, even though he can use that same action, that same sinful action that they intend for his own good purposes. So he keeps people accountable. Man is responsible for their sin. And yet God is also sovereign over everything. And this is how the scriptures appear to harmonize. Now, God's physical destruction in Nineveh images his spiritual victory over the forces of darkness. This is why he mentions how 
Uh, he's going to destroy the idols in Nineveh. God is showing that he is the one true God, that all these other religions are false religions. All this, these pantheons of gods, they are powerless to help. The Lord is the true Lord of all creation. Now, as new covenant believers, we no longer live in a theocracy like Israel. We're not a national political entity, but we are a spiritual body fighting a spiritual war. And God in Christ through his death and resurrection has burst apart the yoke of our enslavement to sin. Listen to 2 Corinthians 10 verses 4 to 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So you can see this warlike language applied to the church in a new situation. There is a spiritual warfare through worship and preaching and prayers and evangelism and the good works that we do. These are not religious things we merely do just to impress God, but these are means by which we destroy the lies of Satan and overcome the slavery of sin. Our prayers are a confident act of free people laying hold of God's promise of power. The preaching of the word is not just what happens on Sunday, but also the sharing of the word among one another as we meet in small groups, as we talk to one another, as we go about and work alongside each other, taking every thought captive to Christ. So there's an urgency and a warfare that every believer must recognize is happening in their lives and in the life of their church. It doesn't mean that we have to get obsessed with a culture war. It doesn't mean we have to become alarmist, but it does mean that we're never really neutral. And there's something bigger going on around us. You can read in Nahum the description of mighty men with red shields, clothed in scarlet and chariots and metal and sieging and all this warlike material. All of it is to show that God is going to get his way, that God is on our side. And if God is with us, who can be against us? Nineveh, with all of its vaunted power and defenses, with all of its prestige and military strength, cannot stop the hand of God. And to prove that, how many of you even know that Assyria was even a nation? We hardly think about Assyria unless we're really into history or something like that. But Assyria has been relegated to the dustbin of history. And yet the church of Jesus Christ, the people of God, have endured to this day. And the people of God will endure forever.